John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist, of course, is this um, kind of wild, embryonic, prophetic evangelist kind of figure, someone who um, uh, uh, often people have told me stories about him, particularly when I first became a Christian, and I I thought, I quite like this guy. He's a sort of a wild man. He uh, lives out in the open air and he wears sort of, uh, it says that he, the Bible says he wore camel hair with a bout around his waist and he, he ate wild honey and locusts. I thought, yeah, that's the kind of guy I think I am. But he was a forerunner for Jesus. He declared the coming of Jesus. And uh, really, when he spoke these words, quite interesting, you see the few verses out of it, it says that from Jerusalem and through the whole region of Judea, people came out to listen to his message, to listen to the declaration of the coming of Jesus. And uh, he talked about Jesus coming and bringing with him power from on high, the fire of the Holy Spirit. So John was baptizing people, but he said, there is one coming. There is one coming who won't baptize you in the way that I'm baptizing you, but will baptize you with fire and with the power from on high. And this is the the theme of what I want to talk about today. This idea that Jesus is coming, but he has also come and he is with us today. This is the moment that John is pinpointing. It is the advent of the public ministry of Jesus. When Jesus receives the seal of the Father as he is baptized in the water. And it is the beginning of the breaking forth of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And this is a time when Jesus will travel and he will declare truth and the sick will be healed and the dead will be raised and it will end at the cross three years later. So today is Advent Sunday. Um, Uh, Three weeks ago was Remembrance Sunday, and as I've said, I believe these are two events that are uh, literally dripping with significance, and I do think we have a challenge to recapture some of the uh, sense of uh, 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 the poignancy of both of these two moments. Uh, Remembrance Sunday this year was huge, wasn't it? Um, I think maybe there were three reasons for that. It's the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, It's the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landings in Normandy and the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I think something of these three uh, uh, moments in history came together, particularly the centenary of the First World War, and people started to understand the themes of remembrance, perhaps in a new way. Um, I I was in London on Remembrance Sunday. I spoke at three services in one morning in North London uh, near Watford. And um, I was talking to the folks there throughout that morning that the visitor sites in Normandy, both in Normandy and on the Western Front, the Second World War sites and the First World War sites, twice the numbers throughout the whole of this year that they've ever had at any other point. And uh, I'm involved uh, next uh, Saturday in an event at the Aegeus Bowl, which is actually now full, uh, several thousand people coming along. And it's, uh, it's an event to mark the centenary of this Christmas 
truce that happened in the trenches in 1919. Are you familiar with that? With the, uh, uh, there's all sorts of legends actually around it, but uh, what's happening is that uh, even now letters are being uncovered that are authenticating the events that have been described for 100 years that took place, that there was this football match that happened um, at Christmas when the Germans and the, uh, and, the, and the Allies came out of their trenches and they just began to embrace one another and for a, for a moment in time the guns were put down and the football was picked up. And uh, next Sunday, next Saturday at the Aegeus Bowl, we're going to do an event which is framed all around uh, this uh, Christmas Day truce that happened in the trenches in 1914. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Sainsbury's advert. Have you seen this? Um, it's quite controversial. Um, I heard someone say that it costs something like $8 million to produce and it is about to be ditched. Uh, basically, they have used this story uh, of, uh, and they've, they've kind of romanticised it. That's basically what's happened. And these, uh, the reenactment is, is very well done, actually. But the reenactment of these soldiers coming together and hugging, and at the end it just says, Sainsbury's, Christmas is about sharing. <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, it's produced that sort of reaction in the nation. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think there is something about our world. I think people are beginning to connect deeply with what really matters. As I move around, I genuinely believe that the mood in the nation is shifting, it's changing, and uh, people have pursued pleasure at the cheapest price, um, but it hasn't worked. It's let them down. It's a bit like the old Hollywood film sets where they look great and then you take a wander around the back and it reveals the wooden struts that are holding the thing up. And so often society can be like that. Or like a Cadbury's advent calendar. This was me once. This is a true story. Uh, A a Cadbury's advent calendar where the Cadbury's chocolates have been removed and the cheap stuff has been inserted into the flaps from the back. Anyone had that rather disappointing, tragic experience? I have had that as a child. Uh, So sometimes, you know, authenticity is hard to find. It can be a very elusive thing in our world today. So on both Remembrance Sunday and Advent Sunday today, three weeks ago, Remembrance Sunday, Advent Sunday today, I want to say that we are invited to look backwards and we are invited to look forwards on both of these events. Backwards to remember the events of a time gone by and forward in anticipation and hope of a different future. And as we glimpse at this theme of Advent this morning, let me take you through three um, just ideas, really, that I've had over this, these last few weeks as I've been preparing for this. The first thing I want to say, the first idea, the first uh, theme or heading that I want to put up today is called the ancient tradition. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we might, could we just lose a few lights up here just so I can... I'd like you to capture some of these images and the video clip particularly in a second. A few years ago, m- uh, my friend Billy Kennedy um, was on really what was kind of a pilgrimage, really, to, to Ireland, to Southern Ireland. And as part of that trip, um, he, he stumbled on an old uh, Celtic monastic site um, in Ireland. And as part of that that site was a really old chapel, semi-derelict. And uh, on that particular day, um, a priest appeared in a car. Uh, There was Billy and and two other people. And a Eucharist service was performed in this chapel. 
and, uh, and the guy came and he welcomed these three people in, uh, my friend and his two friends, and, and they performed this really very traditional, quite austere uh, Eucharist service. Uh, and it happened every Sunday, regardless of the weather. And on this particular day, um, it was just the congregation of three people. And uh, well, after the whole thing was over, um, Billy asked the, the priest, he said, does this happen every week? And he said, yeah. He said, every Sunday, something like that. And as he was walking away, he said, uh, how long has this been going on? And he said, every Sunday for just over a thousand years on that site. You know, church has been constantly reimagined over the centuries. And Christians have strived to be radical and authentic. And uh, I think it is quite important that we, we actually look at history with a measure of humility, uh, that there are people throughout the generations who have, who have loved God and they have loved Scripture and they've loved the gospel and they've loved the world. And, and so Advent is a centuries-old tradition. It dates back to the 4th century, 1,700 years of history. But, but what, is it, what is it really about? Okay, what does it really mean? I'm not advocating that we somehow create this sort of bolt-on religious moment at certain times of the year. That's not what I'm saying at all. So what is it for us in the 21st century in a place like Winchester? What is the message and the theme of Advent all about? Well, here's what, in my opinion, one of the greatest thinkers in the British church today has to say. This is a guy called N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. He was the Bishop of Durham. This is what he said. It should come up. Easter is about one massive moment when Christ was raised from the dead. But Advent is about two moments. The greatest Advent moment is still to come. It is the day when the God who created the world will flood it with his glory, transforming it so that it thrills and throbs with his love, justice, and peace. That will be a great day. The other moment, umbilically joined to the final one is the first coming of Jesus. In describing this, the four Gospels are not primarily concerned with Jesus' birth, important though that is, but with his appearance and the launch of his public ministry in which he announces that God has at last come to his people. So remember what I was saying about John the Baptist a few moments ago. John the Baptist is announcing, he is declaring the appearance of God through Jesus the Son. And so, Advent is not just the build-up to a bank holiday weekend. You know, where we're all going to buy turkeys, you know, possibly infected with bird flu, hope not. And Christmas lights with dodgy wiring and everything that Christmas has become, as someone once said, Rennie's relatives and repeats, you know, sort of defines Christmas. But Advent is not the build-up to that. It's not a month to look forward to the festivities. It's looking back to the, the Christ child, to his momentous life and death and resurrection. And then it's lifting our eyes to the coming of a victorious king. 
when one day there will be world peace. One day there will be lasting peace. That will be a great day. And I believe that whether we are Christian or non-Christian or something else, I believe that there is an unspoken hope that exists within the hearts of each of us. That one day the chaos will end and peace will come. And so when you see, you know, the sort of, you know, glamorous ladies in the Miss World contest when they're asked, you know, what is their, you know, one dream and it's always world peace or the donkey sanctuary or something else. There is something in us that cries for peace. It yearns for peace. Having said that, we all, we all love Christmas in our house. Uh, my wife Lorraine over there has just discovered Christmas 24 television channel on our Virgin Media box. Uh, anyone seen that yet? It's a very good channel. Uh, we were watching ALF the other night. It's a very good film. I recommend it highly. So it is an ancient tradition, Advent. It's something that dates way back and it has a context in church history. But the second thing I want to throw up here today, the second of my three ideas, is that Advent is defined by a deep longing. It it is an opportunity for us to tune in to the Old Testament story and the, 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 the longing that is in the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, in ancient Jewish times, this was the centerpiece. It was the, the centerpiece of everything that they, they lived for, they hoped for, they yearned for. That one day, liberation would come. One day, God would vindicate his name in the earth. And the Messiah would come. So, the Jewish prophets, they, they just had this ability to stare into the horizon of their destiny as a nation. Uh, as a people, as the chosen people of God. And these, these men were able to pinpoint with, really r- retrospectively, with incredible accuracy as they painted the picture of what the Messiah would look like coming through the bloodline of Abraham. And this, this deep longing, this deep yearning is building generation after generation, that there is something coming, there is a a moment in the future where the the God who is everywhere will break into our time-space world. And there were very many different schools of thought as to what that, that moment, what that dawning, what that appearance would look like. Uh, Micah, the prophet Micah, saw a ruler born born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 and verse 2. Daniel saw the restoration of Jerusalem and the the healing of the broken streets. Daniel 9.25. Isaiah, the the great messianic scroll that was uh, part of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in a cave uh, 60 or so years ago. Incredible picture that he was able to paint of what Jesus would look like. And he saw Jesus being the bringer of lasting peace, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Zechariah foretold the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist talked about. He said, there is, there is one coming. There is one coming that will baptize you with power and with fire from on heaven. 
the ability to live a changed life, not to live with the nostalgia of old stories, but God present in us, in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our fears, that he would be the bringer of a power that changes everything for everyone. Zechariah 12 and verse 10, if you want to look these things up. So by the time Jesus' arrival was imminent, different people had different ideas of what the Messiah would look like and maybe should look like. Some imagined this this warrior to come and subdue the, the cruelty of the occupying armies. Some imagined a priest that would end the hypocrisy of the Pharisee system. Some imagined a king who would replace the, the Roman emperor. All, all were true, in part, actually. But very few expected a baby. Although it was pinpointed in history. I don't believe they were looking for the Messiah to come in such a vulnerable, innocent way. So, the third idea that I have for you this morning, I've called a personal challenge. See, the, the story's great, and it's great because it's true, but what does it mean? How do we, how do we allow the, the theme of this, how do we allow Messiah to work its way into our hearts and lives and our, our current reality? What does it mean to receive the child from God, receive the, child, the Christ child, to welcome Messiah, chosen one of God, into our own lives? Well, the most important thing to say is this. Jesus did not come to reinforce or, or even express a new way to live out an austere religious way of life. Far from that. I mean, just a just a glimpse at some of the people that Jesus met and the things that he said and the way he interacted with them. This was real. This was God, but it had flesh on it. It was human. It was touchable. It was connected and relevant and present and authentic. It it wasn't just more stuff out of the old books. It was a living reality. The promise of God today is the power of personal presence. That's what we need. We don't need something else to believe in. We don't need something else to associate ourselves with, some cause to live for, some alternative way of working out life. I believe we need the presence of God himself in our lives. That's what we need. We cannot do without that. And you see, this is the promise of Messiah. That this is what it means. It's God with us, Emmanuel. That's what the angel said, that his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God present, God coming to his people. As N.T. Wright described it, the appearance of God, the moment where God has come to his people. 
And I believe the hunger is still the same today. We just run an alpha course here, and um, the question that so often underpins the conversation, it can come in all sorts of different ways, but the basic question is this. If God is so fantastic, why doesn't he rock up in my house? If he's so brilliant, if he really loves us that much, where is he? The question of suffering. But some of you heard me say this before. You see, Jesus never came to explain away suffering. He came to fill it with his presence. And some of you know that better than me here today. He came to fill us with himself. Why is Christianity different from any other religion? Simply because of this. It's not something to believe in. It's a person to receive. It's so different. Jesus came with his life as the message and a demonstration of what the essence of limitless life really looks like for all of us. The first should be last. The greatest should be the least. The weakest should be the strongest. If you want true life, you have to trade your crown, your position, your assumptions and your rights. This is the essence of eternal life, of limitless life. And it's it's why Nicodemus and the rich young ruler got it so badly wrong. And why Bartimaeus and the thief on the cross got it right. Jesus encountered people of all different backgrounds and persuasions, didn't he? It wasn't just the people of the street, although he did seem to have a particular bias towards those people. I would suggest. And certainly as you look at any great revival or outpouring or breakout with the gospel of Jesus over the last 2,000 years, it does seem to start at the margins and work its way into the centre. Something of our power structures at times seems to be inconsistent with the message of Jesus. And so... God works with the marginalized and the dispossessed and the forgotten and the abused and the left out. And then something bursts into flames and works its way into the center. It does seem to be the pattern. There is a clear pattern of that in the life of Jesus, I would suggest, that the meetings with the rich were one-on-one. I love this character of Nicodemus. It's one of my favorite stories of the Bible. Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees. He's one of the, uh, the leaders. He's, he's one of the bosses. He's one of the, one of the godfathers of the system. And uh, he's clearly observing Jesus um, from the street, from the, the background. He is a, around the events around Jesus. And, and so he visits Jesus at night. He, he sets up this one-on-one with Jesus and... Um, and clearly he's got questions. Clearly his, his system's not working out. He's given his life for this. He's somebody who educates others. He's someone who doesn't just know the books. He doesn't just know the history and the tradition and the structures, but he's able to instruct other people in it as well. But there's something about the simplicity of Jesus, but the profundity of him as well gets Nicodemus out of his bed and 
creates this amazing conversation between the two of them. And that's another story for another day. But what we do know is at the end of that story, Nicodemus disappeared off into the night. And we don't really know what happened to him after that. Not really. But Bartimaeus, who I talked about here, I don't know, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago maybe. You know, this is a guy who has nothing. I mean, he's less than nothing, actually. But he seems to get it right. He seems to know how to receive Jesus. He, ne- he knows how to open up his heart to the Messiah. He, he knows how to do it for some reason. And he also knows who Jesus is. He, he described him as the son of David. How, how did he know that? The people with nothing, the people who have had their dignity stripped away, do seem to be in a more conducive place to receive Christ in the way that God wants us to. It's massively challenging for me, for most of us. You know, as we live in a measure of comfort, is it possible that even those things are the barrier for us receiving Christ in the way that we should do and we need to. See, the the problem with Nicodemus, and you'll see it in that conversation, it's in John 3. The problem with that conversation, the problem that he's got, is that he, he can't quite work out why he can't play the family card, why he can't play the the sort of inherited heritage card. Why can't that somehow keep him in the center of God's plan. He, he, he wants to find a way of working out a way where his, sort of his credentials can somehow keep him inside God's plan for the future. But unfortunately, none of us can do that. We can't play the family card. We can't rely on past experiences. We can't just talk about where we have come from. It's, it's profoundly personal and it's, it's about us and it's about now and it's about here and it's about our response. What will we do with Jesus? Will we just offer lip service? Will we just give an allegiance to him? Or will we waste the whole of our lives on loving him and following him and doing our best to receive him every day in the tough choices that we all have to make. When we feel offended and bruised and misunderstood and maligned, what are we going to do then? What am I going to do then? We have a choice to make. I have a choice. So, what is our response to Advent. I think it is a fantastic moment to, to look backwards uh, to the manger, to the nativity story, and then to linger long enough at the cross so we get broken by it, and then lift our eyes to, to a coming king. You know, we, we live in a moment, I believe, and I know I'm speaking primarily to people who believe all of this, although some of you may be here for the first time, and if you are, this is, this is great that you're here. 
But we do live in a moment where the kingdom of heaven is upon us. It is breaking out all the time. You've, you've seen it and heard it and felt it over this weekend, today and last night. There is something of the presence of God that is here. Something of what the people of Israel were longing for is here. We have access. We have unrestricted access all area passes to the presence of God. That was not allowed before. That was not permitted. There had to be protocols that were put in place that made it possible for anyone to experience God in any way. But now the door is open. Now we can boldly approach the throne of God, not with cringing fear and shame of the implications of looking into the eyes of a God who is perfect, which was once the case. We can do that now, unfettered, bold as brass, knowing God as Father. It's fantastic. The kingdom of God is here. But it is also not yet here. There is something that we are looking for, and this is what N.T. Wright was talking about in the message of Advent. Yes, it, it was the appearance of God through Jesus, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, which is the, the age that we are living in. But ultimately, we are looking to a greater day when Jesus comes or we are taken to be with him in his presence. That is the great Advent moment that Christians are looking for, and it's what we long for. And some of us are closer to that moment than others. But one day we will all be together, worshipping God unrestricted in every way. And that will be a great day. So Advent starts today and it ends on Christmas Eve. It's a time to remember, but it's also a time to anticipate. But maybe more than anything else, it is an invitation from God to step inside the message. It's great to celebrate it, but it's brilliant to be in it. It's great to be an actor in this great drama. That's a wonderful thing. There's some great stuff in the New Testament where it talks about when someone becomes a Christian... God takes them and places them in Christ. You, you don't get somehow grafted in. You don't sort of become the latest member of the God family. But you become enveloped by Christ. You are surrounded by him. You are inside Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a strange concept in one, in one sense, but... It is the safest place that you can be because you are untouchable when you're in that place because you are surrounded by and covered by every promise that was ever made from the heart of God, every ounce of his power, every possible miracle is possible when you're in Christ. So we're not just calling something down from above. We are asking God continually to release in and through us the work of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven. It's what Jesus ushered in. It's what John the Baptist announced. 
when Jesus walked down the road, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Referring to the old system where animals had to pay the death penalty for the sin that was required, but for, the, for the death penalty that was required for the price of sin on every person. But John the Baptist says, there he is. There he is, the Lamb of God. That God himself has come to be the sacrifice.